0: The BRICS Summit in Johannesburg, South Africa, resulted in the historic expansion of the bloc. With six new members, will the BRICS be able to mount a formidable challenge to the dominance of Washington and Wall Street over international finance and diplomacy? What does this mean for working people everywhere in the Global South and in the Global North? We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content multiple times each week, thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work, the author of many books. The latest being the sickness is the system when capitalism fails to save us from pandemics or itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolf Professor Wolf, welcome back.
1: Thank you, Brian, glad to be here.
0: Thank you, we we told our audience last week when we were talking mainly about huge wave of defaults on car loans and what that might mean for the economy. At the very end, we started to talk about BRICS, which was just starting its meeting, its 15th summit in Johannesburg, South Africa. The topic on the agenda, and we mentioned it, but we didn't know what the outcome would be, is that a number of countries, a great number of countries had applied to become BRICS members. And the outcome now is clear. Six new countries have been added to BRICS. And just for people who might be listening to this the first time, BRICS stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. These are countries that have come together in spite of ideological and political differences, and in some cases, even territorial disputes. They've come together basically as an economic association different from the United States-led IMF or World Bank or the EU. The new countries are Saudi Arabia, Iran, Ethiopia, Egypt, Argentina, and the United Arab Emirates. So Richard, Iran and Saudi Arabia have been basically at each other's throats for decades since the revolution in 1979 toppled the Shah in Iran. There's been overtures and even the Chinese have been sort of mediating between the two countries and it looks like there's some there was some diplomatic progress. Ethiopia is not technically in the Middle East, but it's right across the water there in the Horn of Africa, Egypt, part of Africa, but also the Middle East. And then the United Arab Emirates, another major oil producer. And then when you look at Latin America and the map, you see Argentina and Brazil, now both members of BRICS. When you look at a map of Latin America, of South America, Brazil and Argentina take up half that map. Anyway, Richard, we want to talk about the big picture here, the significance of this. Again, you know, 30 years ago, 33 years ago, what was called the socialist bloc, which was an alternative at that time to Western powers, collapsed. The Soviet Union collapsed. The socialist governments in Eastern and Central Europe were overthrown. That inaugurated a period that the U.S. at least aspired to be a unipolar power, It appears that that period has ended, even though we may not quite know what the new period holds. Anyway, your thoughts.
1: Yes. Probably the most important thing to say is that we are living through, all of us, a major transformative change in the world economy. There is nothing more important in my own opinion, to the future of all the parts of that world economy, including the United States, of course, than this shift in how that world economy is organized. It didn't just happen overnight. It didn't just happen with the uh, 15th meeting of the BRICS. They've been around uh, for, as you can see, uh, quite a number of years. But the last year— the last year and a half, particularly coinciding with the Ukraine war, have brought slowly developing changes to a kind of intense peak. And that was symbolized when the BRICS, a group of five nations as you just listed them, expanded by adding six new ones so that it's now a block of 11 countries. Why is this important? The answer, since the end of the Second World War, roughly 1945, until the early years of this century, so we're talking somewhere 60, 70, 75 years, depending on where exactly you put the boundaries, for that period of time the United States was the dominant economic, political, cultural, military force and power in the world. It was what historians are already looking back on as a unipolar, one-pole world. Anyone who knows the history of the human race knows that in the few moments of history when there's been one dominant power, it never lasted. That one power, sooner or later, was challenged by multiple powers. And it's also just as likely in each of those situations that you will find that over time Not only did the one dominant power lose its one dominant position, but it ended up, in most cases, being replaced by another different dominant power. And the candidates this time are crystal clear. The declining dominant power is the United States and the rising alternative power is the People's Republic of China. In a way, it replicates what a century or more earlier was the decline of a dominant power Great Britain and the British Empire, giving way to the rise of a new dominant power, namely the United States. Okay, that's the framework. Now let's look at the specifics to see what it all means and will mean in our lives. First, the year 2020, the year when the COVID pandemic really hit the world big time, that was the last year that the total output of the United States and its major economic allies, known today as the G7, the United States, Western Europe, Japan, and Canada, those seven countries, the U.S. and its allies, in 2020, produced roughly the same amount of output, goods and services, in that year, that the BRICS, the five nations that Brian mentioned a few moments ago, roughly 30 percent, both of them, G7 and BRICS. Since then, over the last three years, the proportion of the total output of the world accounted for by the U.S. and its allies, the G7, has dropped from about 30 to 29 percent whereas the share of the total output of goods and services accounted for by the five BRICS nations rose to approximately 32-33%. It's just a way of seeing that the direction of change of the last 10 or 15 years continues. Bottom line, the G7 is now the number two economic powerhouse in the world. It's lost its number one standing. It doesn't matter whether you measure this in regular exchange rates or in something called purchasing power parity. There are a number of ways one can do it. The numbers shift, but the basic inequality I just summarized doesn't change. We are in a new world. And this all happened before you add those six countries that Brian listed that are important, but particularly because three of them, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, are among the 10 most important producers of oil in the world. And therefore, together with Russia, which is also a major player in the oil business. United States was so dominant over the last 75 years that buying and selling of oil, basic energy in this globe of ours, was conducted by every country in U.S. dollars. That is no longer the case. No one can know how long and drawn out the decline of the United States may be. And no one can tell you, me included, how long it will take for the BRICS to consolidate their enormous achievement of becoming the second powerhouse alongside of, and now somewhat larger than, the United States. But here are some of the implications of where we already are in this shift. Number one, every poor country in Asia, Africa, Latin America, or for that matter in Europe too, now has a choice. It now has alternatives it can go to to get goods sold, to purchase goods they need, To get investments in their country to overcome poverty, to make joint plans with rich countries to develop their own situations. In the past they had to go to the United States or to the G7 or to the global institutions set up by the United States and the G7, things like the International Monetary Fund, Or the World Bank and so on. They can still do that but they can also go to the People's Republic of China and the BRICS alliance and they can seek better deals, better prices for what they sell, lower prices for what they buy better terms on getting investments in building the railroads, the harbors, the cities, and so on in their formerly poor countries. And they're going to play the two dominant blocks, G7 and BRICS, against one another. That has already begun, been going on for some years already, and the shift to the BRICS is already obvious and worth in the hundreds of billions of dollars. A second effect these countries want the benefits of trading in their own currencies. They do not want to constantly be dependent on the United States. I'll give you an example. If a poor third world country wants, or if you prefer the language global south, if a country in the global south wants to borrow to build up its health system, its school system, its road system, you name it, they often have to go to the west and they often have to borrow in the dollar. Now what that means is They have to pay back in dollars and they have to pay interest in dollars. But their poor country may find that getting dollars becomes more expensive if the exchange rate between their currency and the dollar shifts against their currency and for the dollar. Why might that happen? Well, if the Federal Reserve raises interest rates a long way in a short time, which is exactly what has happened in the last year and a half, then every Global South country is in deep trouble because the cost of the dollar has gone up together with the rising interest rates. If they pay back a loan and they have to take out another one, which is normally what happens, the new one, which they would have always had to take in dollars, carries the new higher interest rate, which may make the whole project prohibitively expensive, leaving the global South country impoverished. So they don't want to be dependent on the dollar that way. They want to be able to borrow in their own currency, so that they don't have to worry about exchange rates. They can pay back in the same currency in which they borrowed. I could give you a dozen other examples. This whole process of moving away from the dollar is now called de-dollarization, and there is a lot of that going on. Oil is being sold for the Chinese currency, the yuan, and for other currencies around the world. These were trades that used to be done in dollars, so banks don't have to keep dollars, so central banks don't have to hold dollars so that their own country businesses can deal in dollars. The dollar is losing its global role, just like the British pound did a century or two ago when it lost its global. Nobody hardly deals in, pays with, or holds as a reserve the British pound. So you can see the future by seeing the parallels. Now finally, what are the meaning of all of this for the United States? Well, the United States has used its unipolar situation. World War II collapsed the Japanese competitors, collapsed the German and Italian competitors in Europe, and ended any chance the Soviet Union might have had, and it was a long shot at best, of becoming an economic competitor of the United States. It never was, and the countries that might have become so were wrecked in World War II. And that meant that over the last 75 years, the United States could do almost anything around the world. We have hundreds of military bases all over the world. No other country has anything like that. We are active, traders, investors, lenders, to virtually every country on earth. Americans are active there financially. Again, no other country has anything like that. And these connections gave the United States all kinds of advantages. They could charge higher prices because there were really no competitors. They could drive good bargains to lower the prices of what global South countries had to sell because nowhere else could buy what the Americans could buy, etc., etc. All of that is going away. It's already less than what it was. The United States has had to discover that Global South countries, or wherever they are, countries that are small and poor, now can thumb their nose at the United States and they're doing it. Vote against the United States in the United Nations and they're doing it. The United States obviously imagined that when all of Europe and America would go against Russia in Ukraine in a war, that the Russian currency, the ruble, would collapse, the Russian economy would, in the words of our president, fall to its knees. That turned out to be wrong. That turned out to be a mistaken calculation. It did not anticipate, in the case of that war, that Russia's connection with the BRICS and above all with the two key allies in the BRICS, namely India and China, that they and the other BRIC countries would be able to support Russia by buying its oil, its gas, its fertilizer, its grain, and thereby keeping the Russian economy in reasonably good shape. It didn't fall to its knees or anything like that, and the ruble didn't collapse. It went down for a while, then it went up, now it's down again, but these are gyrations that are not being driven by the war. The reality is That the United States cannot do what it used to be able to do. The United States has spent, depending on how you count, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 100 billion dollars, right? At a time when we're worried about inflation, that's a bad inflationary boost that that kind of government spending adds. And that's going to hurt the US economy. That's why interest rates are not coming down because the inflation, as those who are paid to watch this know. Here's the final thing just to think about in gross terms. The two largest countries by population in the world are China and India. They have roughly 1.4 billion people, okay? The United States, by comparison, has 325 million. So we're already talking about an economic powerhouse that has way more people and all the resources that kind of a population means with which to struggle. Here's the final point. The BRICS is, as Brian, you said it well, is full of very heterogeneous, very different. We're not talking a, a global split between the United States and the Soviet Union in what we remember as the Cold War. I give this following statistic just so everybody keeps the perspective they need to in understanding this. The gross domestic product—that's a simple measure of the output of goods and services here in the United States—last year was about $21-22 Over the same period of time, the GDP of Russia was one and a half trillion dollars. We are looking at a struggle if we look at the United States and Russia of David and Goliath, and you should be clear which is who. But everything changes with the bricks. If you put the bricks together, we are talking 20 to 30 trillion dollars, and that is where we are with the G7. So the direction of change is unmistakable relative decline of the United States and its allies, relative rise of the People's Republic of China and its allies. But all at the same time these do not amount to a struggle between capitalism and socialism. That's a different issue and you shouldn't mix one with the other. China proudly refers to itself as a socialist society. Saudi Arabia, also now in the BRICS, does not. A number of European countries refer to themselves as social democracies because of the enormous importance of socialist programs, socialist laws, and socialist political parties. The head of the German government today, and Germany is still the dominant economy in Europe, the head of the German government is a socialist and says so. But obviously the United States and Britain are not. In other words, among the G7 there are all kinds of differences, including often quite bitter differences. And the same is true among the BRICS. What they do have in common which takes me back to the beginning of what I said, is that they understand that the global economy has changed. The global south is becoming the new powerhouse through the agency of the BRICS. There's no chance that I can see that this is going to change. We're only going to see this developing more so. And the United States is therefore left, and I'm sorry to take this time, but it really is important. The United States is left with a big, enormous decision. You can either work out a deal with the BRICS so that these two powerhouse economic entities can live together, trade with each other, etc., sort of like the United States and China did from the early 70s to uh, five or ten years ago, a time when both economies grew faster than they are doing now. Or the United States can set itself against the BRICS and China the way Trump did and the way Biden continues to do make big deals about Hong Kong and Taiwan and put the U.S. Navy over there and fight a war in Ukraine against Russia to weaken them. You know, Britain tried to stop the United States from becoming the new global power. That's why we had a revolutionary war in 1776 and another war with Britain in 1812. When Britain lost those two wars, it gave up the attempt to stop it. And ever since, we're talking now nearly two centuries, Britain and the United States have worked out a way to live together. That's the issue. And remember, we are not talking here about anything other than a war between the G7 and the BRICS when people on both sides are very well armed with nuclear weapons.
0: Richard, I wanna go over some of the, and we're getting close to the finish line here, but I wanna go over for the audience some, to reiterate some of the facts that you pointed out. The share of global GDP by BRICS, there are different numbers going around, but it's in the above 30% level the population of the BRICS countries with the additional six will now be 46% of the global population. Oil production, 43%. 43%, almost half of global oil production will be with these 11 countries. In terms of export of goods, The BRICS share of global exports will increase, slightly continuing to be led by China. That will be about 25% of global exports. So again, BRICS is an economic association. Obviously, the countries have many issues that divide them. When Dilma Rousseff was impeached and we had Bolsonaro, basically a fascist leading Brazil, there was a lot of questions about what would be the fate of BRICS given the very right-wing pro-American orientation of Bolsonaro, but Bolsonaro's gone. Narrow election for Lula, but Lula is really, you know, putting Brazil back at the center of the world stage, especially with a heavy orientation towards Africa. I want to also remind the audience that, you know, this whole project of BRICS started not as an aggressive move by the emerging, formerly what we called the Third World or Global South economies. It wasn't like an act of aggression against the West. In fact, what happened is that India, which is the largest producer of pharmaceutical goods more than any other country in the world, had the HIV AIDS drugs that it could sell to Brazil and South Africa who were at that time in a dire straits. You know, so many people were dying of AIDS in Brazil and South Africa. And India couldn't sell them to those countries because the patents, the so-called intellectual property rights of these drugs that are manufactured in India, and India knows how to do it they belong to Western countries and mainly the US. So it was this monopoly on patent rights that was depriving South Africa and Brazil, emerging economies of medicine they needed to keep their people alive. So that's how BRICS got started. This kind of reaction to the suffocating impact of monopoly control over patents, which of course is everything. It's not where the product's assembled. You know, the Apple company doesn't, they don't invest much, China does the manufacture of iPhones, but all the profits, not all, but the majority of the profits go to Apple because they have the patents. They have the intellectual property rights. So it's a reaction to this, these kind of monopoly trends that mirror old-style colonialism, but in the post-colonial era, they continue. Final point that I want to make, and then we'll get you for the last two minutes in terms of reaction. In 2019, Chinese universities produced about 50,000 PhDs in STEM fields. STEM is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And the U.S. produced 16,000 fewer STEM graduates at that time, 2019. That was 33,000. So 50,000 for China, 33,000 for the United States. Based on current enrollment patterns, this is from Forbes magazine, By 2025, just six years after 2019, China's yearly STEM PhD graduates, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, will nearly double those graduating in the United States. So it'll be 77,000 graduates, STEM graduates in China versus a little less than 40,000 in the United States. So you put all of this together. This project didn't start because people had read capital or the communist manifesto, you know, it wasn't an ideologically driven thing. It was the necessity it's brought about by the global class struggle in a way, the domination of, of us capital. But even though it's not ideological, people are using the tools that they have to try to survive basically. And in that process, these new blocks and formations are, are coming together. Go ahead.
1: Final word, you might be surprised to know that one of the countries that applied to join the BRICS was France. Mr. Macron, the, the current president of France, requested to join, to be admitted to the uh, BRICS group, and the BRICS group met and with respect declined his invitation. They did not open themselves to him. But I want people to understand, Mr. Macron has his finger in the air and he knows which way the wind is blowing. And if that's the case, then watch out. You are then seeing the beginnings of a broad-based recognition that much American foreign policy, and much else in America is not going to be able to stay the way it was. Sooner or later, it is going to have to catch up with the underlying reality of a changed world economy.
0: Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness Is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolf You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners.